Gangary the Podcast is made possible by the Ashland University Journalism and Digital Media Department. As Ohio's only converged media program, Ashland JDM is training tomorrow's journalists and media creators for media careers in the 21st century. For more information, visit Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department online at ashland.edu slash JDM. Or head to the JDM blog at ashlandmedia.blogspot.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. This week, I talk with Baxter Holmes, a reporter who recently joined ESPN as its new Los Angeles Lakers reporter for ESPN.com. Holmes recently wrote for the Boston Globe, where he covered the Boston Celtics. Before that, he was a sports reporter for the Los Angeles Times. It was his first job after graduating from the University of Oklahoma in 2009. Holmes has won a slew of awards in just a short time as a professional sports writer. He has received Associated Press Sports Editor's honors for explanatory reporting, projects reporting, beat reporting, and breaking news. Additionally, he received first place honors in the Game Story and Features categories in the Professional Basketball Writers Association 2013 Best Writing Contest. A year ago, he profiled Celtics head coach Brad Stevens in a three-part series. In September, he profiled Celtics guard Marcus Smart. His latest piece for the Boston Globe was a story about the time Bill Russell, Casey Jones, and other players from the NCAA champion, the University of San Francisco, visited the inmates at Alcatraz. We've linked to those stories on our website. That's at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Baxter, welcome to Gangry the Podcast. Um, well, thank you, man. I, I really appreciate you having me. Well, first off, congratulations on your new position with ESPN. Um, how's it going so far? Uh, it's going well. You know, I'm still in the process of getting settled and, and dealing with the whole relocation thing. I'm still in corporate housing, but I just signed a lease uh, at a new place uh, the other day, so I'll be moving in soon. But ESPN has been very helpful, and everyone's been great. I'm enjoying it so far. That's great. Um, let's start things off by talking about your last story with the Boston Globe, which is where you were before joining ESPN. Uh, it's a story about uh, Bill Russell and, and a bunch of other uh, college basketball players from the University of San Francisco um, visiting a place I think college uh, basketball champions don't normally visit, uh, you know, prisons and specifically Alcatraz. Can you read the introduction that's at the beginning of that story? As the boat rocked in the bay's choppy waters, nearing a place once known as America's Devil's Island, the priests gave the players rules. Remain calm, he told them. Stay on topic. Don't do anything out of the ordinary. Reality started to settle in. This wasn't like a banquet or ticker tape parade or television appearance or anything the players did after winning a championship. This was different. Civilians aren't allowed out here, the priest added. Don't get too friendly. This is really an amazing story, um, and and one that seems had seems to have been lost to time. How did you first hear about it? Uh, so a few years ago, when I was at the LA Times, I did uh, a feature about a basketball tournament on Alcatraz put on by Red Bull. It was a one-on-one tournament uh, with players from across the country, and I think the, the previous year the winner had been from Los Angeles, so there was local interest from my editors and. Before I started working on the story, uh, um, I was just kind of initially interested, you know, if basketball had ever been played there before. And I, initially, I eventually connected with 
uh, a guy named Robert Luke, who was uh, in prison there for uh, armed bank robbery at one point, and he told me just very nonchalantly, like, oh, yeah, you know, Bill Russell and Casey Jones were there. And I was like, whoa, you know, I've never heard of this or read about it anywhere. Um, yeah, I remember doing a search for it, and I didn't see anything. And then uh, he told me about his book, Entombed in Alcatraz, and, uh, you know, there was the picture of them there. And so um, I had started kind of digging around things there, but it was really hard to find information. Um, and then four years, you know, later, I guess, when I was at the Boston Globe, you know, I remember this summer I went up to my editor and said, uh, you know, there's a great story on Alcatraz. You know, I, I feel like I probably did a bad job pitching it. I was just so excited about doing it because um, I, I really wanted to dig in and see what more was there. And I also knew that a lot of the characters that were involved were probably getting up there in years. I didn't know how much time they had left, frankly. So, um, uh, but yeah, that's that was kind of the impetus. What was it about the story that kind of stuck with you for all that time? Because, you know, I, I get story ideas a lot of times, and they kind of just <laughs> they fade because I don't push them. Uh, what was it that stuck yeah. with you? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I have a kind of a fascination with Alcatraz. I'm not sure why. I think I've toured it like three or four times. I've never done the night tour, though, which I've always wanted to. And, uh, I hope to do that soon. But um, And then, you know, the idea of these basketball players kind of mingling with the most notorious criminals probably in the history of, you know, the, the in the history of the federal penitentiary system was just kind of, I, I, I had, couldn't believe that that happened, and moreover that there was almost no information about it anywhere. You know, the only thing I saw was this photograph um, in this book written by, one, you know, a former convict there. And I don't know why, it kind of, it stuck with me, you know, I... I I do kind of get hooked on stories. Um, it's hard for me to let some of them go, depending on you know the idea. But uh, nothing was quite as as grip gripped me quite like this one did. Mm-hmm. Can you talk? Uh, you you said uh, you didn't pitch it really well. Um, <laughs> you must have pitched it all right, I guess. The story got done. Yeah, you know, I I, I tend to think that I'm just not very good at, at pitching stories because I. Um, you know, I get really involved in, like, the idea, and I'll do some initial reporting, and, you know, eventually, like, I'll come up to my editor and say, oh, there's this great idea, and, and you won't believe, you know, and nobody's ever done it, and, and nobody else would have the story, and and it's like, I don't even, it, it takes me forever to actually get to the point, because I just, I'm so, you know, I'm so excited about all these things, and, you know, my editors uh, before are just kind of the point, like, okay, you know, we know... You know, I, I've done enough of enterprise or long form stuff where they they know I can deliver. But I feel like actually giving them a rough idea of what the story about sometimes is something I struggle with, just because I get so excited about the idea that uh, you know talking about it is just you know I talk in like circles. Do you uh, do you do you ever? Is it easier for you to write a pitch? Uh, it is usually, yeah. Um, I think this particular one, I was in the office that day doing expenses or something, or, uh, and and my boss was walking by, and I knew that I had to. It was like coming up, you know, that in August or whatever. I just talked to the people at Alcatraz. They told me that you know there was like the 80th anniversary of the uh, federal penitentiary's open was coming up, and they kind of said, you know, come on out, we'll. You know, you can come to the anniversary and, and talk to as many people as you like. And 
you know, that got me even more excited, you know, the fact that, like, oh, there's a time hook in the 80th anniversary of my editor will probably like that. Um, so, yeah, but and then I did send him a written pitch later, I think, and, and he gave me the go-ahead. Did you, um, did you have to have that Boston connection with the story? Do you feel? I think so. Um, I mean, I probably not if it was, a, if I was with more of a, just like a national publication where, you know, it wasn't based in any one city or, you know, like writing for a very specific kind of audience. But, um, you know, when I was in LA and I remember hearing about Russell and Casey Jones and, you know, also, uh, Rajon Rondo being there, I knew that, oh, you know, if I was at the, the Boston Globe, you know, they'd love this story. And then oddly enough, you know, I ended up working there. Um, and it was kind of in my head the entire time that I was at the Globe, you know, this was something that I really wanted to do. Um, and sure, it helped that, you know, it's, it's two of the you know, most iconic players in Celtics history, along with, you know, one of their current players right now. When did you, can you talk a little bit about how you reported this um, and, and kind of how you uh, got in touch with all of those people who were out there? Sure. Um, I, I kept some of the phone numbers, well, all the phone numbers from the people who I'd interviewed a few years before when I was working on the, the LA Times story about the basketball tournament on Alcatraz. And so I, I called back several people there, um, you know, the, the former bank robber, uh, I think there were some prison guards that I spoke with. And uh, I also called the people at Alcatraz. I was just, you know, very kindly asking for them to put me in touch with as many people as possible. Um, I, I certainly read a lot of books and any kind of documents I can get my hands on, you know, going through microfilm at the library, the San Francisco Chronicle. and um, You know, there there was really not much to go on with the story. You know, the, the event itself wasn't written about in books. It wasn't, uh, you know, written about in newspapers. The only real written thing I had was uh, in uh, the bank robber's book. So, you know, I knew that I needed to talk to people who were there, and I was always in the impression that um, it was just Bill Russell and Casey Jones, but I eventually found out that it was the starting five of that uh, University of San Francisco championship team. And so then it was a matter of fighting, figuring out, you know, who's alive, Still, and eventually, uh, through the university, I got connected with one of the forwards, Mike Farmer. And, uh, you know, he took, we talked for like an hour initially, and, you know, he took me through that day. Um, and then connected me with another person who was uh, uh, also there, one of the other teammates. And I spoke with him, and so, you know, I felt like I had a, a really good start with those two. You know, I wanted to get. Bill Russell, he declined to uh, he declined multiple attempts to be interviewed. Uh, Casey Jones, I wasn't able to unable to reach him, but uh, I felt like with the other people, and then certainly all the people involved with the prison, uh, that I that I had the the makings of a good piece. Why do you think Bill Russell didn't want to talk for the story? He has, uh, and this has been written about, a grudge going back to I think. 1957 with the university the uh just of it is he went after uh winning his first championship with the celtics he came back wanted to go back to school in the summer was under the impression it would be free they he was informed that his scholarship had run out and they would have to pay there was some kind of disagreement or argument 
from that point on, he just decided he wasn't going to affiliate himself with the university. Um, and uh, it's rather sad, actually. I, I talked to several of his teammates on those uh, USF title teams who told me they hadn't spoken to him in, in decades, uh, and they you know tried to be in touch. But uh, anyways, yeah, he just you know like I I've tried uh, uh, yeah as kindly as I could, but I I think because the story has to do with USF, I, I presume that. But that's just a, a topic that he doesn't want to talk about still. Hmm. You still had a lot of great stuff, though. Um, when when you got all the reporting done, can you talk about the writing process and maybe how you were able to kind of figure out how you were going to tell the story? Sure. Um, so uh, there was a mountain of stuff um, that I had, and, and not just about the actual trip, but about the prison itself that – I wanted to work in because I really wanted to set the scene and have people understand the kind of people that were there, um, as well as about the team, you know, reading books about the team and how good they were and things of that nature. Um, and uh, I was I was in Los Angeles, and I remember I had just gotten back from the 80th anniversary, and I knew that uh, when I had sat down with a, a former guard and his eyes kind of lit up because he was the one who had escorted the players down Broadway, the central walkway between, or in, in the prison. Uh, I knew kind of that I needed to have something that was present, you know, that it, that it happened when I was there um, on the island. And so I knew I kind of wanted to start with that. But from then on, it was I was kind of chronological in terms of, you know, setting up, uh, uh, you know, the, the team, you know, how good they were, um, you know, then the invite to the prison, what the prison was like, what the prisoners was like, the interactions, what their day was like, and then bringing it back a little bit to the uh, to the present um, with, you know, being in Louisville and talking to Rajan Rondo this past summer about this, this story that, you know, like you said, has really kind of been lost to time. I know in terms of, uh, in terms of your career at the Boston Globe, this is, this is your last byline, right? Yeah, this was, uh, and it was interesting that it worked out that way. You know, I was um, actually talking to ESPN about the opportunity uh, in the midst of the, of the reporting process for this. I think I had interviewed in Bristol before, just before flying out to San Francisco. Um, I had done some other interviews with them, I think, while I was on the West Coast. I was out there for about three weeks working on this. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it it was interesting just kind of how the timing worked out that way. But uh, I think more than any story I've done to this point in my life and certainly at the Globe, you know, this was the most fun story I've, I've done, the one that I probably cared about more than any other, um, I more than I probably obsessed about any other, to be honest with you. And uh, if I was going to go out on a final note, I was, I was glad it was this one. Were you uh, Were you happy? I'm, I'm assuming you were happy with how with how the story turned out. Yeah, you know, um, for I mean, I was yes, and I was really impressed with and, and grateful with just how much space Duo gave me, what the layout ultimately looked like. You know, they during my entire time there, I wrote a lot of uh, long form stuff and was just blown away by how much time and space and, you know, resources they would give me to do those kind of things because, you know, I know the current market uh, for newspapers and, and what space, you know, is worth these days. And uh, so, yeah, but they were they were great about it, and I was happy the story turned out, you know. I mean, for 
as long as it was in my head to actually see the final product uh, was something that was pretty cool. Right. I think a lot of I think every reporter has that one story that they just want they just have to do at some point in time and then eventually they finally get to do it. Um, <laughs> so hopefully they get to do it eventually. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's I talk. felt lucky with that one. I felt, you know, I mean, again, uh it was just it was like the rock in my shoe. I couldn't get away from it and uh there was a lot of time where I was just wanting the time to be able to work on it, you know, to make one a phone call or something. And in the midst of an NBA season, uh, you know, being the Celtics beat writer for the Globe, it was hard to find time. But I knew, you know, that summer, I think I had kind of set my sights on this this past summer. It's like, this is the time when I got to do it. All right. Well, let's talk about another story that you did. Then um, this one is kind of on, was on your beat uh, as a Celtics reporter, but it's still you know, a long-form piece, a really in-depth profile of Marcus Smart. Um, did, did being the beat reporter help you get the access that you needed to tell that story? Uh, yeah, I would say so. You know, but the access was also surprising to me. It wasn't, you know, I I, I knew that I wanted to write a profile of him. I knew he'd had uh, kind of a really traumatic, you know, uh, childhood and, and so on. His story was really just remarkable. Um, and so I planned to go to Texas, you know, right after. I remember being in summer league after he was drafted, and I talked to him about it. He's like, yeah, sure, you know, come on down. So um, so I was sitting in, with him in Dallas uh, at an apartment, and we had a, you know, a long interview for about an hour. It was pretty emotional. And toward the end of it, I said, you know, I was wanting to check out uh, his neighborhood, uh, the, the one where he grew up in that was, you know, pretty rough. And if he just had any tips about, you know, maybe things I should go see or anything at all. Um, and he said, well, when are you planning to go? You know, I'll go with you. And in the back of my head, I was like, wow, you know, this would be amazing to, to you know, have him go, come back. And then, you know, we get there and he tells me that he hasn't been there in so long that he can't remember uh, his last visit. And so then we just, you know, we walked around the entire complex and spent a lot of time together, and he showed me all the places where he grew up, the houses. You know, I spent, um, you know, several hours with his his mom and his brother up in Flower Mound. Uh, So, you know, I mean, when I flew there, I didn't have any, I know that I was going to be getting all of that. That was, that completely caught me by surprise. And he was really open, too, um, just about his life and 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 the troubles that they had that he had, um, were you, I mean, even in terms of openness, were you surprised at how open he was? Uh, yeah, I would say so. I mean, again, he's a rookie, so I think he's still kind of uh, fresh in that way. You know, hasn't dealt with media just like on a, like they do in the NBA just so much. But um, he also dealt with a fair amount of it when he was at Oklahoma State. I mean, this is one of the top players in the country who – you know, especially dealt with a lot of national media. So, uh, it, you know, it was interesting. But, I, you know, I'm extremely appreciative of his candor mm-hmm. and his willingness to share what, you know, frankly, is some really, some really tough memories. Yeah, the story is really made um, by, you know, the, the tour that you got of his neighborhood. Uh, and I think it seems like that gave you a lot of scenes that you were able to, to, to create uh, throughout the story, specifically, like starting out a lot of the sections, can you talk a little bit about about that? Yeah, you know, I, I knew that I was going to write the story in that way. That you know, because it was like there was this 
this presentness of uh, you know being on the tour, and I was like, I was gonna. So he walked me through his kind of life on that tour, and I was like, this is what I'm gonna do for the reader, and I will kind of I'll use it in sections. I'll bounce back out of that to you know give background about his life and and so on and so forth and certain key moments, but that I'll, I'll always I'll, you know I can it, it also wraps the story up nicely in a bow. You know I can. Start the story when he starts the tour. I can end the story when he ends the tour. It keeps it kind of simple. Um, it was a little bit complex to write because I'm I'm bouncing back and forth out of scenes. This one was one, probably one of the trickier ones. Um, uh, but when you know I I showed it to my editors and they liked it. Um, it went on page one, so there was some tinkering from the page one editors at the Globe. But uh, you know I was very happy that they ultimately decided to. Uh, stick with that structure. Yeah. And some great photographs that went with that story as well. Yeah, yeah, that was the, the that was a part that was a little bit trickier because um you know they wanted to shoot him in in certain areas doing certain things and after that time after we got back uh you know he was bouncing around doing a lot you know making appearances up in Maine, I think he was in New York for some stuff. He was back in Texas. I think he he was also in Las Vegas for some stuff, so he was all over the place. So it was you know pinning down a time for that was uh, was a little bit tricky, but yeah, the photos were great. Well, we're going to take a short break. Uh, we'll be back with more from Baxter Holmes in just a minute. Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department is the only fully converged and integrated media program in Ohio. JDM majors apply converged skills in practical, hands-on labs using state-of-the-art hardware and software content creation tools. And they do it all alongside award-winning faculty who double as industry professionals. Recently chosen as Ohio's best non-daily student newspaper, The Collegian covers our campus and beyond. Ashland's 3,000-watt radio station, 88.9 WRDL, broadcasts local news, sports, talk, and today's best music to mid-Ohio and to the world on WRDLFM.com. Meanwhile, AUTV20 brings campus news, sports, and events to life in more than 12,000 homes. Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department, creating converged digital media professionals for the 21st century. Find more information and apply today at ashland.edu slash JDM. Welcome back to Ganger the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. I'm here with Baxter Holmes, a reporter for ESPN who covers the Los Angeles Lakers. Uh, He's just started at ESPN, so we're talking about some of his other work uh, that he's written for Boston Globe, most notably. Uh, You recently wrote a piece for Esquire on the Washington Redskins team name controversy. Can you talk a a little bit about that piece? Yeah, so uh, it's, it was a piece for ESPN, or sorry, for Esquire.com, essentially talking about what the team's name means to me. Um, I'm certainly not exclusive in this feeling uh, of what um, uh, the deeper meaning of the team to a lot of Native Americans. I'm Choctaw and uh, Cherokee, but the team name to many Native Americans is directly tied to the collection of government bounty for, for Native American scouts. There were various different uh, rewards and things of that nature that were put out uh, way back when. Uh, and the scalps that were collected became known to a lot of Native Americans as Redskins. These stories have been passed down for a long time, and these you know protests and marches have been made, these cases have been made, that this is what this means by a lot of people. 
But uh, I, I certainly noticed that it seemed it seemed when people read the piece that there was a, a big reaction to it, um, which I found very interesting. Again, because I considered you know considering that point, I know it's been made for a long time by a lot of people, and if you you know Googled it before you know my piece came out, it was easy to find in a lot of places. Yeah, you uh, and you have a personal, very personal connection to it, with which I think really kind of I don't know. Maybe that's what the, what sparked the feedback. I don't know. Can you talk? What do you, What do you think about that? Yeah, you know. So I remember my mother telling me at a young age about the term, you know, uh, Redskins and, and the collection of government bounty for Native American scalps, and you know, I, I was obviously horrible, and I felt I remember finding out there was a team named the Redskins, and I thought, you know, it was just just a terrible, terrible thing, and I always assumed that you know when I grew older that it would uh, it would go away, but it, it didn't. And over time, as as you know, especially lately, as Daniel Snyder has just been more and more stubborn to change it, even this protest have gotten louder. It was it was uh, something that you know certainly bothered me a lot. You know, I grew up uh, in Oklahoma. That was where my family moved to, kind of get closer to our Native American roots. My mother preached uh, and taught us about the history of, of tribes and our tribes, and I've just, you know, been really involved in, in things uh, for as long as I can remember. Um, and so, yeah, this is something that's, that's very personal uh, to me and to my family, along with a lot of Native Americans, of course. Yeah, and, and you said it generated quite a feedback. Were you were you prepared for the for the level of feedback that the, the, the piece got? I know. I mean, you know, like I, my phone. Gosh, it was. It, it didn't stop ringing uh, that first day, and, and I was doing interviews uh, for the piece for probably three weeks after. Um, and uh, you know, my email inbox and you know, different tweets to me about it. Um, it was, you know, honestly, by the end of the first week, I felt exhausted. Uh, and this was, you know, in between, uh, you know, covering the Celtics for the Globe. Uh, there was obviously a lot of people who, uh, you know, disagreed. A lot of Redskins fans who, you know, very aggressively disagreed. There were a lot of Native Americans who thanked me, um, and then there was a lot of general people who just said, you know, I didn't know. Uh, you know, it's a terrible thing. You know, it's changed my opinion, that kind of thing. But uh, you know, all in all, yeah, a very aggressive response. I would say, particularly from uh, you know Washington Redskins fans. Yeah, I've never really. Especially since the debate has come up, the, you know, it seems to me like the smart thing is to change the name of the team. But I never realized that that's where the term came from. And then after I read your piece, I was like, "Oh my gosh, how can they not change the team name?" Um, yeah. So it was it was a real it was really it was a really good piece. Um, Thank you. It, and you also you wrote a follow up the next day. Is that right? To responding yeah, well, to I some think, of the think... the criticisms. Right. It was it was like later that day or, or, or the following day. I, I can't remember exactly, but you know, I was I was talking with uh, you know the editor I was working with there, and you know, we obviously knew how much uh, people were were disagreeing with it. And you know, one of the particular things is that you know the term Redskin had never been used in like a you know the actual term, and so then we we dug up a, a basically a newspaper clipping from uh, I think 1863 where they you know talk about you know, collecting $200 for every Redskin. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, so we wanted to write that and publish it. And again, you know, I don't, I don't expect people who are not Native Americans to really understand 
what that term means to us, the history kind of tied to it. And I and I also, you know, understand there are people who would say, well, the term didn't always mean something terrible. Um, what And, you know, to them I always, you know, I, I use the line that Kevin Gover, who's a member of the Pawnee Nation of Oklahoma and a director at the Smithsonian Institution National Museum of the American Indians said, he said, uh, I'm not, I'm really not that interested in where the word comes from. I know how it was used. You have this rich cultural background in terms of in terms of your your um, you know your Native American background, and you've written about it now for for the Esquire for Esquire dot com. Do you think you'll write about this anymore at some point in time? Maybe not necessarily specifically with regards to the Washington Redskins, but uh, just in terms of your Native American heritage. Maybe you know. Um... I'd like to, certainly, if, if the opportunity arises and something that's appropriate. You know, I mean, ideally, I'd like to, you know, write about this uh, with, you know, with the news that the Redskins are changing their name. Uh, but, uh, yeah, potentially down the line, I think, you know, there could be could be something there if, uh, if, if, if the opportunity is right, yeah. Yeah. I know. Uh, let's talk about just uh, maybe how you got started reporting and writing. I know your bio says that you started writing for newspapers when you were 16 years old. Yeah. So um, I was from. I'm from a really small town in Oklahoma, and I was a sophomore in high school there in geometry class when there was a knock on the door, and it was the local sports editor uh, of the weekly in, the, in that town, and. He was with my high school basketball coach, and the editor asked if I would cover the basketball team. And, uh, um, you know, I guess my editor or my coach had recommended him because I wrote decent English papers. Anyway, I asked if he would pay me. He said yes. Uh, I'd never written a story before, but, you know, I quickly found that I really enjoyed the challenge of trying to capture in words, words what happened. Um, and, uh, you know, I went from covering, you know, just that team for that paper to covering, you know, all the sports at the school for, I think, three different papers. And I really just, you know, I, I was hooked. Um, and, uh, you know, I went to the University of Oklahoma. I did, I worked for the student paper while I was there. I think I did four different journalism institute, or, uh, internships, you know, one in South Dakota, then Salt Lake City, then the Boston Globe, then the LA Times. I did three different, you know, uh, journalism institutes while I was there as well. So I just, I really fell, you know, hard into it. Um, uh, I, I when I was playing basketball, I really devoted myself to that. I wasn't a good player by any means, but I was just kind of obsessed with trying to, you know, get better in a lot of late nights uh, working on it. And uh, I totally transitioned everything over into this, uh, whether you know, reading different books about the history of journalism or certain journalism titans, about writing and the craft of storytelling and you know, narrative arc and things of that nature. Uh, I just, yeah, it really kind of consumed me. And uh, so, I mean, I'm obviously very grateful that, you know, things have, have turned out okay enough. I can make a living doing it. Is there, like, one person or one, maybe one other writer or reporter that has had a big impact on you? Um, there's a couple people. Uh, but, you know, the, the guy who I'm always going to think of a lot is an editor in Los Angeles when I was there. Uh, he's still there. His name is Steve Padilla. He is also the writing coach, uh, well, along with being the assistant national editor for the LA Times, he's also the writing coach for a Tribune company, which means he goes around and does uh, 
writing workshops a lot, you know, the Chicago Tribune, Baltimore Sun, Hartford Current, and so on. And uh, he's a musician. Uh, and also just, and, and I think that gives him this just great sense of, of rhythm and stories and how a story should move along and pacing. And, and he just has this remarkable sense of, of knowing exactly what a story really is about, how a, you know, what, how a story should be framed and whatnot. And, uh, but he also has this, this sense of being able to tell you in just a couple words, you know, give you a couple pieces of, pieces of advice and all of a sudden, like, everything is crystal clear to you, exactly what you need to do and who you need to talk to or the details that you need to find. And I worked with him on several stories uh, in L.A. In fact, I think every story that I did that was any good, uh, he had his hands on. In fact, he had his hands on the Alcatraz piece um, and helped me rearrange some stuff, including the ending. Um, and uh, without him, I don't even want to think of where I'd be. Uh, you know, he totally kind of molded my mind to finding, you know, a lot of the stories that I've done and into, you know, how to tell them. Uh, and so, you know, he has some, some, I think, podcasts online or there's some videos online of him giving workshops and there's a list on pointer of him on how to find story ideas. And I, you know, I recommend those as often as I can to anyone who cares about the business. He's just a, you know, he, he is very, 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 very good at what he does. Well, Baxter, thanks for joining the podcast. I really appreciate it. And uh, good luck uh, uh, at ESPN. We look forward to some more long form stuff from you here in the near, in the, in the future. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. I really appreciate it. We've been talking with Baxter Holmes, a reporter for ESPN.com, who covers the Los Angeles Lakers. He's also written for the Boston Globe, the Los Angeles Times, and Esquire. We've linked to several of his stories on our website. That's at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter, at gangrypodcast. That's at G-A-N-G-R-E-Y-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. You can download Gangry the Podcast on iTunes for free. Just go to the iTunes store and search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. Gangry the Podcast is available on Stitcher Radio On Demand. Stitcher is an award-winning free mobile app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows on demand. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at Stitcher.com or in the app stores. Gangry the Podcast is produced in the studios of WRDL 88.9 at Ashland University and is supported by the Department of Journalism and Digital Media. Our intro music comes from Noah Heyman. Technical help was offered by Steve Cease. This episode was produced, edited, and hosted by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.